This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the Warthog Manly Command Center cave. Well, not a cave. It's a command center here in the Melton Law Studio of 352-325-3938. And uh, we're returning uh, weather-wise somewhat to normal here. Uh, it's still a little bit of nippy, but, you know, this is, after all, the beginning of February. Don't forget that. We are now beginning another month, and time just keeps rolling right along. So uh, hope you're doing well, and uh, hope you're enjoying the show. We are uh, creating a backup system, as we said right now, in case YouTube uh, has another one of its fits. Um, we appealed it, and they listened to the appeal, and put us back on there, but they're very fickle. Um, basically, I'm learning about all this now. The millennials know it better than I do, of course, and our production guys understand it. But uh, what basically happens is an algorithm picks up certain words. It's been programmed to pick up certain words and automatically dumps you if those words appear. So um, uh, then you have to appeal and you have to get a human being to listen to uh, the words and then depending upon uh, the argument you make and the material as it was presented, uh, they'll give you a forgiveness and put you back. But it's a real pain in the derriere. And so we're creating a system so you'll always be able to see us on wardscottfiles.com where we all archive all of the shows. So um, that is a connection that we have um, developed and we appreciate those who donate to the show and support our efforts to uh, keep it coming to you. Um, we're not a big outfit. We're done. We're, um, uh, you know, not, you know, like some of these guys you've been reading about here recently. Uh, basically, I don't listen to any other talk show hosts uh, since Rush Limbaugh died. I, I did listen to him, uh, learn from him. And I, and I like the person who occasionally subbed for him, who was from Canada, I think it was. Uh, his name slips my mind right now, but I, I really enjoyed listening to him. Other than that, um, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you just don't you just don't uh, listen to them because you've got your own voice, your own narrative and your own uh, uh, approach to all the information which I share with you and ask you to um, think about. Um, you know, this is uh, run like a classroom. It's, I think it's probably the only show that I know of. It's run like a classroom because that's my uh, training as a professor is to critically think and teach people to do it uh, here on the show. Uh, I. Uh, Somehow, sometimes tip my hand if my opinion is uh, um, helpful. And, you know, everybody's entitled to an opinion, um, provided, of course, it doesn't trip the algorithm. But uh, here, here, here's the deal. We'll get into that a little bit more as the show goes on, a little bit what censorship is doing right now. Um, but my point is, um, y'all are entitled to post whatever you want to say out here as I watch on Facebook chat. Um, and sometimes I respond as I see it. Sometimes I don't. Because, um, I mean, I don't want to censor the chatting um, anymore, and I want somebody censoring me. So uh, you'll see all sorts of comments out there, and 
and you can uh, t judge as you will uh, the source and evaluate it just as you do me. Now, there are a couple of things to just report locally quickly. Locally doesn't have a, a big bunch of news into it. Others, once again, there's this uh, feel good affordable housing thing that's going on around here, but it's a, it's a spasm. It's a, it's a, I mean, my, listen, I've been on, I've been a chair of those committees. That's very difficult to really, you know, do that. They're going to try to do it on a mass scale by infiltrating neighborhoods that are, uh, you know, where people live in single family homes, worked hard, paid the mortgages, that sort of thing. And one of the hot spots supposedly where that is taking place right now is at the corner of 43rd and 23rd here uh, in uh, Gainesville, where they're going to maybe rumors have it put in some affordable housing right there in the middle of uh, single family residences right around the corner. And that's reaching a lot of, uh, of um, uh, getting a lot of negativity as it should and a lot of input into government discussions as much as the government will allow discussions here. So out of all this, Malieu has come uh, Bolarski, who, you know, I you know knew was going to get dumped. They'll never dump themselves. Uh, banana pudding, never saw dessert he didn't like. The bully uh, led the charge and, and ambushed and blindsided Bolarski. Uh, so Blarsky's going to run for mayor. I think Blarsky will win. I mean, I, I really do. I think uh, he's got enough name recognition, which is a biggie. And he has been dumped on by these people, which is a biggie. And he was the head of GRU. And he didn't run GRU in the ground. The orders the commission, the incompetent commission gave him, ran it in the ground. And so I think he's going to have, geez, may I predict a turnout? This, is, this will really be the measurement of having somebody like Balarski run for mayor. What will the turnout be? Uh, you all can sort of guess and speculate as I am on what it will be October 22nd. Uh, I believe that's the date. Um, I have to check it out, but I believe, um, uh, uh, you know, what will be the turnout? The turnout historically for the city commission, the candidates uh, has been around 10 to 13%. Um, I, I don't, maybe, maybe once upon a time, rare occasion, 15%. But mostly uh, somewhere around uh, 10 to 13. It, you know, with Bolarski, it might be a little higher. Um, dare I say 20? I, I don't ever see it getting over 20% turnout in the city of Gainesville. I think 80% of the people have given up on the political process in the city of Gainesville. But if he, if he has the right time, it's all about now advertising his brand and advertising and distributing it depends on how much money he can raise. Uh, who's going to back him, where that money's going to come from, and what difference they think he'll make. He'll have just enough of, a, of an attraction to people because he's antithetical to the commission. And there hasn't been anybody antithetical to the commission. Uh, Chestnut's just going to get in there and, and, and have a government, one more government check. The woman has lived off, and you got to give her credit. She has lived off government checks uh, since uh, time and memorial. I mean, we, you know, I can't remember when she didn't get a government check. And, you know, she's been on the school board. She's been this. She's been that. And she keeps drawing these government checks. And don't think there isn't a handsome retirement and all that. Meanwhile, Christopher Chestnut gets disbarred. Um, the undertaker sits on the uh, county commission and is always going to be there because notwithstanding the fact that there's no single member districts, he'll always be there because he will fill the identity politics uh, formula that we are now obsessed with in the country. So um, there, there you are. So Bolarski will step into this. And he also has enough information in his head, I hope. And he's a bright guy. 
uh, about how the thing really works or doesn't work and why it doesn't work. And I'm talking now about the miserable finances of the city of Gainesville, which uh, two accounting firms, are, uh, one already couldn't straighten out, uh, spent a year looking and didn't have any records to work with and gave up and charged the city a quarter of a million bucks, which they coughed up of your money. And then, and then, of course, you know, now we've got another one coming in and they're going to run into the same thing, lousy record keeping. And they've even broached so far as to try to intimidate the interim um, uh, a city manager, a black lady who you would think would be because of identity politics, perhaps immunized against criticism when uh, banana pudding and ilk. But if they sense that she's going to actually uh, turn the spotlight on them and show them to be the incompetent ones, I trust you, they'll, uh, she needs to understand it too. I'm sure she does. They'll turn on her too. Um, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, act, they'll act like, oh my golly, race is the most important criterion for anybody to be anything. And then, you know, here we have a, a identity politics filled in two, uh, two boxes are checked. One, she's a female. Uh, two, she's black. And um, there you go. But I'm going to predict for you that if she turns a spotlight of responsibility or irresponsibility, shall we say, on the city commissioners, then they'll can her. I mean, that's been their pattern. And, you know, burn me once, burn me twice, but don't burn me three times. And these people, these commissioners have burned burning people and, and uh, since the beginning of time, this seven-member uh, crew. And uh, Asenko, the communist, uh, she doesn't care. She's, she's known for giving the bird to, uh, to her uh, constituents as she walked into the, can you imagine? I mean, come on, you know, what a crude, crud, crass thing it is for a lady, right? A lady, uh, a, a liar, by the way, from the University of Florida Law School uh, to shoot the bird across this parking, across the sidewalk to people who are asking her questions about, you know, why things are uh, falling through the cracks at the city of Gainesville commission. And what does she do? She just gives you the international fighter pilot salute and, you know, gives you, a, you know, this disparaging kind of attitude. Um, if somebody did that to her, she'd be crying foul all over the place. So that's really kind of what we got going on locally. Keep your eyes on this Ed Belarski. Um, he, he may uh, have a shot. I predict he's going to have a very good shot. And I, I'm going to predict right now of that there might be as high as uh, 20% turnout. Oh, geez, boy, if I were, I, I may hit it right on the head. Uh, we've been averaging, as they say, 10 to 13. Meanwhile, we keep uh, um, our fingers crossed because you know we're doing some uh, high-powered election. I uh, can't use the F word because it triggers the algorithm, but high-powered high election investigation here locally with our supervisor of elections. But, you know, we're finding out that this is not necessarily an exception to what happens because these supervisors' elections uh, don't tend to be very uh, uh, energetic. I don't know what it is. They get the job. Uh, nobody questions their job. Um, they don't purge voting rolls. So in Tennessee, we noted that this is something very similar uh, to what we've been running across here. Perhaps uh, in Memphis, there's a lady named Pam Moses who will uh, serve nine months of a six-year sentence nine months of a six-year sentence, and she was found guilty of making or consenting to false information on an election document. Uh, notice I did not use the F word uh, that would trigger the algorithm, but that's okay. I'm just quoting from the Memphis paper here. 
um, that uh, she was found guilty of, of false information on an election document. I'm telling you now, don't think this is an exception. Um, there's never been any reason to look before. That's what I'm realizing. You know, these elections have been sailing along, but because of Trump being such a controversial figure um, uh, in the minds of many, uh, he has triggered this uh, inspection of the election process. And we've already told you that uh, the, the best analysis, cautious analysis, is that uh, there is no security in the election. Uh, the people who, from whom I quoted this document uh, didn't come out and say that it was the F word, but it did come out and say uh, the election was not secure. I, th I think as time goes by and more and more people look at these things and turn over rocks that were never turned over before, you're going to find out there's a many, many more worms there than you ever dreamt. Um, so this uh, just Judge Mark Ward, I refused to give her bond. Uh, she has had, now this is, this is what we're finding, 16 prior criminal convictions and was on probation when she lied about her uh, uh, eligibility to vote. And uh, that really irked the judge. He didn't, he didn't, you know, had she not had that record, but we're finding that to be the case here. We know that uh, a worker from the Supervisor Elections Office here, T.J. Pichet, who has since disappeared, um, from the supervisor elections office, went into the jail and came out differently from the way he went in. Uh, now, she claimed this woman in Tennessee that she thought her voting rights had been restored when she went to a vote and, uh, and, and election officials signed off on it. Um, that, that, and she thinks that now she's the, the object of a politicalization of, of, of this, that there would be no investigation if it weren't for the politics ramping up about who's eligible and who isn't, you know, I've got to say that there probably is, and I, notwithstanding her, her checkered past, um, a lack of attention to the details by the election officials. I, you know, there's this big push uh, to just let everybody, as I say, who can make a fog on a mirror, uh, uh, let that person vote. And it's just led to the worst types of things that nobody really has followed up on. And uh, we followed up on it here. We told you about the Zuckerbucks. Nobody in this community knew about this till we tipped everybody's hand off that there was $700,000 dumped in by Zuckerbuck into this local election. And that's private money coming into a public election. Um, was, it, was it against the law? No, but are we gonna try to change it? Yes, and are the Democrats hollering foul? Yes. So um, uh, you, you, she, the judge says you went down to the probation office, told them you weren't on probation, and, and then tricked them into giving you a form so you could re-register to vote. Um, and I don't know about the word tricked. I mean, uh, come on. I mean, did they not look? I mean, you go down to the probation office and they don't you hit a clerical level of inattentiveness. Um, so... Um, uh, the, the, the attorney for her uh, claimed that the judge was uh, taking a role and taking sides in the deal. And he tried, the liar tried to get her off that way, but it looks as if she really is going to the jug. So I just wanted to uh, put that in, uh, in the classroom comments today because uh, we have been looking around here at uh, uh, this type of deal going on uh, right here 
under our own nose. So uh, that's uh, my little comment on what's going on in the, the election world, uh, tippy-toeing around the F word, um, and also uh, a little bit about Bolarski and whether or not, remember, maybe, hey, if we're still around here, uh, good Lord's will and the creeks don't rise. Do you remember that I said perhaps we'll have as high as a 20% turnout for a guy like Bolarski? Maybe, maybe not. Um, you know, I always have to give my COVID report, and it looks as if the COVID uh, now is a, uh, uh, it is a done deal. I call today's show uh, the done emergency. Uh, everywhere now, um, they're beginning to be governors, not just here, who are relaxing their, uh, their attentiveness or their super sensitivity to uh, this and that, one thing another, depending upon their political bent. Even the demos are, uh, are sort of relaxing because, you, you know, how long can, can you sit on a bayonet? You know, I mean, uh, you just you have to get up and walk around after a while. So it also some of the studies are coming out. And I've, I've maintained all along on that. It's going to take time to sort out some of these things. The influence of COVID on the last two or three years, including the elections, is going to take quite a little bit of time to sort out because there's so much politics involved in it and so much protecting of self-interest. But I can assure you that the latest I've been able to find, this is by Dave Boyer, is that lockdowns in the U.S. and Europe had little or no impact in reducing deaths from COVID-19. Um, you know, the business people were saying that all along. Uh, you, know, you know, the lockdowns are killing our economy, uh, running off our employees. And by the way, now we have these, you know, uh, hiring signs everywhere because, oh, Uncle Joe gave out money to people to stay home. Uh, and now the studies show, and they gave out that money to stay home without any studies, you understand. So now the studies are coming out, uh, and this is according to researchers at John Hopkins. Now, John Hopkins has supposedly got the creme de creme reputation. Um, this, they did the analysis, and they said that the lockdowns during the early phase of the pandemic in 2020 uh, reduced COVID-19 mortality. Are you ready for this? By a point, about 0.2%. Uh, and that there were multiple scientific studies that were uh, uh, analyzed and they, and they all concluded that there was no evidence that lockdowns or school closures or border closures uh, or limited gatherings had a noticeable effect on COVID-19 mortality. There you are. I mean, uh, come on. You can put that in your pipe and smoke it and you can spin it the way you want to or think about it. And you can say, depending upon your political bent, well, that poll is no good or is good or that's it. I knew all along or whatever. I'm just saying that this is the latest analysis uh, by uh, a respected institution, John Hopkins uh, Institution, John Hopkins University, and uh, that these lockdowns and all the things that uh, ensued from that really had no effect whatsoever noticeable on the COVID-19 mortality rate. Um, and on the other hand, it said that the lockdowns had a devastating effect on the economy. And we are just beginning to find out uh, the contribution to numerous social ills. <clears throat> We've been talking about this <clears throat> lockdown effect on, on the little chillin' and on education. And we don't even know what the effect of that's going to be because well, we've got a whole, a couple, three years of kids now who miss socialization 
by not going to school in those formative years where you learn a circle from a square and you learn your name and you learn your colors and all that and, and get along with other people. And uh, um, that's those formative first through third uh, years. And they missed it. They were not there because of the lockdowns. So uh, we don't really even know the extent of that social ill and what that might be producing on down the line. But we know that it's contributed to, according to the study now, um, uh, and you take it, you, you research it yourself, but um, reduced, it's reduced economic activity. It has raised unemployment, reduced schooling, as we're just talking about. It's certainly caused political unrest. It's contributed to domestic violence. And it's undermined liberal democracy. In other words, and I'm going to give you another study here in a minute. It's quite in interesting. It has to do with libertarians. So um, um, this is, this is the, the government intrusion. And I'm also going to go back and I've researched and I'm going to share with you how effective Operation Warp Speed was, but how it got no credit from Uncle Joe and the media. But now we're looking back and, buddy, it gets a lot of credit. So uh, lockdowns in the U.S. and Europe had little or no impact in reducing COVID-19 uh, deaths. Uh, it, you know, in the early phase of it, it may be uh, reduced mortality by 0.2%. Uh, this is one of the studies that uh, I'm, I'm going back and, uh, uh, re and, and reiterating for you. Isn't that interesting? Now, this is the sort of thing that, um, take place after the dust settles because, um, you know, I used to ask my students, um, uh, you know, kind of an exercise to illustrate the difficulty in writing history. Uh, you know, say you have a class of 20, let's be conservative, you have a class of 20 people. We got, we, we, we basically had that at Santa Fe. Um, you have a class of 20 people and you assign the project of writing that history of the community for the last week. How many different versions of history do you think you will get if you have 20 people who write the history of the community, they're all living it, um, for the last week? Try it sometime. Try it with your club that you're involved in or one of the other organizations that you meet and ask your uh, uh, people to, let's, let's do this, let's have this experiment. And do not collaborate, do not talk to each other about it. Individually, you write the history of the last week. I just picked the week as a convenient period of time. It gets even more interesting if you say the last month. And the farther out you get, the more you tend to get the same history uh, because there's been so much precedent that's uh, uh, influenced their minds. So, you know, that's where we are with slavery right now. We're so far out from slavery, we don't have any actual slaves and we don't have any actual slave holders. Uh, uh, but but we do have a lot of narratives that have been approved or disapproved of by politicalization of the issue. And so you tend to get only an acceptable narrative. Uh, there's really a no uh, a reason. And I've studied this pretty carefully um, uh, because I, I once taught a course on Southern literature. You, you don't to get a real clean look at the race relationships in this country, you have to look through the eyes of somebody who lives in another country. And um, then you get a little bit more balanced uh, 
uh, uh, take on it. Uh, the best is written by Eugene Genovese called Roll, Jordan, Roll, which is a look, a very careful look at uh, uh, the relationship of the races. And he's an Italian. Um, there's also the world that the slaves made and there's a world that the slaveholders made. And that's another study. I think Thomas Riley wrote that one. But um, uh, there's, there's a lot of work, but those guys are not sitting here uh, influenced by a narrative which has been accepted. So when you have this exercise that you do with your whomever, um, you can uh, play that game. And the closer it is, uh, you, you narrow down the limit of time to a week, uh, boy, they have to dig and scramble for what were the momentous events uh, that are going on. One of the things that's interesting to watch here is the uh, 34th Street wall and the uh, memory of the Danny Rawlings victims, which has been there since 1990. Um, now that's 30 years or about 32 years. That's, that's a pretty darn good time. Now we've reached a problem where there's so many layers of paint on the wall that the memorial painted by the students right after it happened uh, is be, really peeling off the wall. So the, the question has become, is there anybody around here now who's a student who has institutional memory of the event? And of course, there isn't. Um, so who's going to take care of it? It was once the closer it was to the actual event, the more the students took care of it themselves. And as you got farther away from the event, uh, you got to a place where there was a fraternity, I think, that took up the responsibility of maintaining uh, the wall in, 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 in good order. And now we've gotten away from that. So we're 32 years out from the event. And uh, uh, who will step up uh, you know, and, and take care of that is getting more difficult than it was before. Is it the obligation of the city? Well, who owns the wall? Maybe you can fix the wall, but who's going to put the painting back in its original form becomes the next issue. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm going to close, you know, we've got about a few more minutes before we we'll take a break with a hat. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say that uh, uh, Americans remain, this is another study, Americans remain, this is from Monmouth University poll. Uh, the Americans uh, are still concerned about the virus, but they have really lost faith in the federal government. Um, there is, um, uh, uh, um, they really have no faith in the, in the ability of Joe Biden and the federal government to get a handle on this, uh, even as the pandemic fades uh, amid uh, uh, time and distance and vaccines and whatnot. Um, so uh, so uh, Americans' concern that COVID hasn't gone away, but uh, it seems as if uh, what the government has done has not helped it, has actually made it worse. So uh, uh, this is a poll from Monmouth University that uh, is very, very uh, uh, detailed. And, uh, uh, and, and let me just check on the, the percentages here. Uh, half of American adults uh, report getting a booster shot. A significant number, 40%, a little under, remain unlikely to ever do so. 45% have gotten the booster shot along with the two shots. Uh, 37% say they, they'll never do it. And um, so 17% remain opposed even to getting the initial vaccination. So 37% say they won't get the booster. They've had two shots. 45% got two shots and the booster. 37% said they would uh, not get the booster, but they have the two shots. And 17% says, hell, not no, but hell no. 
And uh, the key factor is the public's inclination to accept having to live with COVID. Uh, it, uh, it seems unlikely, therefore, that we will ever meet the mysterious uh, term you've heard is the uh, herd, herd immunity. Uh, we're not going to reach herd immunity. But Operation Warp Speed, Alicia Finley has, uh, has analyzed now in hindsight. Um, you know, it was successful in that it, de it delivered two monoclonal antibody treatments. Um, and Biden turned around and abandoned the program. Uh, you're going to hear a lot of spin now as the Democrats try to hang on to Congress. Uh, they're going to hear a lot of spin that Biden's credit. Biden terminated Operation Warp Speed according to the analysis by Alicia Finley. Um, so Operation Warp Speed um, f shifted the financial risk to government by the government placed orders for vaccines and therapies even before they were authorized by the FDA and shown to be effective. Moderna was just shown by the FDA uh, to be thoroughly effective and approved of just a day or two ago. War uh, Trump didn't wait. Uh, he encouraged pharmaceutical companies to expand, this is in the Wall Street Journal by Alicia Finley, uh, manufacturing ca capacities. He ex encouraged uh, expansion of vaccines and therapies. And uh, he bet that the FDA would approve these things. So Operation Warp Speed uh, have now explained their theories and what they did uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, and uh, they said that uh, under Operation Warp Speed with Trump's encouragement, uh, they took a risk and predicted drug performance in a new disease and that that was very, very difficult. Uh, and, and but they felt like they had to take the risk and Trump was pushing it. Uh, Operation Warp Speed in July 2020 announced a $450 million manufacturing and supply agreement with Regeneron. It went up to 300,000 doses of this experimental monoclonal antibody, uh, which I think Biden has shut down. Uh, a few months later, it ordered 300 doses of Eli Lilly's experimental antibody, and the FDA granted emergency use authorization to both treatments in November 2020. Um, so during the final two months of Trump's presidency, Operation Warp Speed ordered another 1.25 million doses of Regeneron's and 650,000 of Eli Lilly's antibody treatments, uh, and they left the Biden uh, administration well supplied. Um, but when the Biden administration came in, they dismissed Operation Warp Speed. Uh, so, but you go back and look at the data now, cases and hospitalizations fell as Operation Warp Speed rolled the vaccines out. Um, Biden prematurely declared success uh, on the 4th of July and failed to prepare for another wave and did not stockpile treatments and did not invest in new ones. Uh, this is all coming out now. This is the science of it uh, and the politicalization of it. Trump went ahead and rolled his sleeves up and said, come on, man, we ain't got time. We're going to take a chance. We're going to go. We're going to encourage and we're going to pay for it. Biden shut it down and took credit for doing it. Um, the, uh, um, um, so, you know, it, it, it's all, it's all going to hopefully come at the, um, uh, you know, DeSantis here has tried to circumvent the feds under Biden by ordering monoclonal antibody treatment from GlaxoSmithKline. Um, and, uh, you know, you can see what Biden has done to the attempts by DeSantis and his attempted to besmirch uh, DeSantis because, you know, of course, why he considers him to be a threat. Um, 
there you go. I wanted to get back. I always suspected Operation Warp Speed was really the real deal. And um, you could uh, uh, thank Trump for that. Uh, but that would be have to work its way through the censorship cloud uh, and, 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 and the narrative that's being written by uh, the people who want to uh, demonize him and make a hero out of Biden. Um, one last thing before we take a break, and we'll take a little bit late here today, is um, interesting to me. There are several libertarians who watch the show. Um, there are people who are good friends that uh, um, uh, comment and, and, and you see and very interesting uh, organization, makes some good publications, uh, considered to be uh, to the right, as I understand it, of the right part of the, uh, even the right of the Republican Party. But what's interesting is one more COVID effect is that this overreach by politicians, i.e. Biden, has brought America, moved America more towards a libertarian moment, according to the latest analysis uh, that uh, has been made about where we are politically. Uh, uh, th this has been studied by Gerald Baker, and um, it's the historical reality of, um, and of, of, of the laws of human governance. Uh, it's called the ratchet effect. Um, once the rules are introduced by government, and we just had evidence of it with lockdowns and school closures and masks and the like, um, rules get more expansive and they seldom get more limited. Uh, taxes are therefore levied for this uh, emergency sort of, and they become perpetual obligations. And government agencies are then built to administer uh, the function of this bureaucracy, which becomes permanent. And when a crisis is over, and this is gonna be interesting to watch now, and the reason I call today's show the done, the, uh, done emergency. When this crisis is over, and over means we'll accept the fact that we'll be living with COVID and we'll be able to handle it, authorities will probably not uh, relinquish uh, uh, the powers that they assume during the emergency. Um, in fact, the government will be bigger than ever, and uh, uh, there'll be more rules and more on, on, onerous regulations. So uh, now people are beginning to watch, uh, you know, the failure of Build Back Better as an indication of how distrustful people are of the current administration. Um, and the authoritarian instinct has also been now applied to what once was a free, a, a sacred field, and we've experienced it here on the Ward Scott Files, and that's freedom of speech. Uh, we have been, as I said, shut down because the algorithm here is a word it doesn't like, uh, and it's been taught that it violates community standards, whatever those are. Basically, what community standards are is thou shalt not question the election. Um, when we got shut down for the January 14th show, I wasn't questioning the election, Biden was. And I was reporting on Biden questioning the election. And I was sourcing it from Fact Check and Wall Street Journal. So uh, you have to really watch these people because the government is getting bigger, the constitutional rights are being uh, diluted, uh, marginalized, marginalizing more and more people who don't subscribe to identity politics and race gender deal, uh, who don't believe in um, uh, what the narrative is coming out of bureaucracy. Uh, and, you know, the misinformation is now uh, uh, cited by the, the platforms, the social platforms as anything which questions the narrative of the bureaucracy. If you do, you're spreading misinformation. And uh, the only information that's acceptable is that which the government accepts. And 
we're, we're tracing this now with social analysis done as apolitical, and we see that this is pushing us perhaps toward um, even more now a libertarian movement where people will order their lives uh, in spite of the government and try to slip away from the government um, and um, uh, become more and more powerful. The state we're keeping an eye on is Virginia. Uh, it holds its statewide elections a year after the presidential vote, and the voters explicitly rejected uh, the Democrat platform, put Glenn Youngkin in, and moved it towards an anti-government, bureaucratic uh, heavy-handedness. Uh, we have the same thing going on here with Ron DeSantis, who is smeared by the local Gainesville sunset all the time uh, because he dares to question the authoritarian demands of the experts, of the Democrats, and the media. Uh, the judicial system uh, is probably also in jeopardy because we see now uh, that we're going to color code uh, anybody who can apply to be a justice. Uh, and we know that uh, politicalization has occurred in the Supreme Court, which is supposed to be uh, objective. And yet, where did those lawyers come from? They came from liberal law schools like the University of Florida Law School here that has only one uh, Republican law professor. And I stand on that until somebody proved me wrong. And I know the gentleman or didn't know him if he hasn't retired. So um, uh, the Supreme Court, under Trump's appointments, has struck down Biden's administration's mandates requiring private employers to compel employee vaccinations and landlords to let tenants live rent free. Um, so um, the, the, perhaps the biggest cause for optimism coming out of this and the one that's got the Democrats concerned, and I'm going to get into that after the break, is uh, the time now, and it's a, it's a positive out of COVID, if you will, uh, that they've lost faith in the heavy handedness of Washington, D.C., bureaucracy and government. So um, that could be one of the positive things to come out of, 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 um, of COVID. And that, 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 analysis by, that analysis by Gerald Baker. And I agree. I've seen it. I've watched it. I've been listening to it. We're going to take a break now, right now on the Word Scott Files, maybe play you a couple little ditties or a tune to keep you happy. And I'll heat my coffee and be right back in just a moment. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. The Ward Scott Files gold sponsors are On the Spot Dry Cleaners, Okita America Martial Arts, r, &R Construction, Gators Dockside, and style cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. If your brains were lard, you couldn't grease a small frying pan. <laughs> to call you stupid would be an insult to stupid people. Octon, octon, the papers are not in order. Step out of the line and report to the inspection station. We are going to search your belongings. Much now. At Warthog. 
He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me. Help. Help. Ken Cornell, known as the thin skinned water boy, Ken Cornell. Cornell wears elevator shoes, Ken Cornell, he just wants to be like. All right, welcome back. Ken Cornell song. I'll be darn hick. Well, have a little fun for you. Try to break it up a little bit here. Uh, Professor Ward Scott here back in the man cave, the Manly Command Center man cave, 352-325-3938, or over here on the Facebook chat. I'm taking a look now and then at what you're saying. And um, uh, uh, we'll go from there. Listen, um, I just talked about what the setting is with the people versus the bureaucracy of Biden. And how it'll take time to sort out who gets credit and who deserves no credit. Uh, but the Democrats are preparing to create their false narrative right now. And I wanted to go through this with you so that you weren't surprised by what they're doing. Uh, if the narrative that the Democrats came up with was accurate, I'd, I'd go along with it. But, you know, it's a fiction. And they're, gonna, they're very good at writing these fictions. You have to understand that this was a job that Obama particularly gave a, a, a novelist to do. Uh, in the basement underneath the Oval Office was to create narratives and then distribute them to the media. And the media was so enamored with the fact that we had a quote-unquote first black president uh, that they took the narrative that came out of the White House and just reprinted it. And that became for eight years a story everybody was supposed to listen to. Um, so um, what they're really hoping is that um, uh, they can, of course, do something about this um, um, failures they've had. And one of the failures is the uh, massive spending bill known as Build Back Better, and and um, the um, uh, all all of all of that in implication and all the stuff and the crap that they had crammed into that thing that was dishonest and deceitful, um, and and, and uh, uh, kind of a, uh, a kind of a hat trick or whatever you want to sleight of hand. And a lot of guys are analyzing. This is analyzations by Seth McLaughlin. I've read some others that say the same thing. I've said the same thing. And the Democrats are going to try to hope now that the COVID-19 crisis is over before the election. Now you see uh, it's a liability for them. Uh, Biden tried to downplay Operation Warp Speed as I just went through and take credit for uh, his ability to stop uh, and he, and he didn't do anything that he said he was going to do. And COVID kind of has faded on the basis of the uh, 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 procedures that Trump had put in place. And Biden tried to take credit for it. But people see through that analysis come out, COVID's going to fade. So if COVID fades, uh, which the um, uh, Democrats hope will happen, uh, then they'll be able to uh, get you to forget the fact that that was a a Trump effort that Operation Warp Speed created 
whatever impact it did that was positive. Um, the other thing is they hope uh, by the Fed raising the interest rate a little bit and people getting back to work that inflation is going to come down. I don't know if that's going to work. People, you know, these prices, once they go up, don't tend to come down. I've been going in the grocery store. I don't see how people, some of these people are eating. This is a real insult to the minorities. Um, I was in a country grocery store the other day. I keep the name of it off the air, but boy, I saw people really looking high and low for the best they could get for the most. And it wasn't easy. And um, so the economy is going to be a problem and they're going to hope that inflation is going to come down. But they won't be able to lie about that very easily because the price of the gas. Uh, but they will spin it this way. They'll say, well, we're driving up the price of the gas because we're getting ready to convince you you need an electric car. But what they don't tell you about electric cars, it takes fossil fuel energy to run the electricity to, uh, to uh, charge the car. And they don't, they're not probably not going to be able to do away with this uh, legislation, uh, but they're going to try to spin it that they did it to help the families and the little chillin. And uh, that's going to be a, a, a reversal of the truth that they're going to try to pull off in their narrative. So <clears throat> we'll see how they do. Um, so keep your eye on the inflation and keep your eye on COVID and keep your eye on how they spend the pandemic fatigue. And then they're going to try to sweep under the rug the chaotic removal of Biden's Afghanistan fiasco. And they're going to keep ramped up a chest thumping type of attitude towards Putin. You know, if there's any kind of collaboration going on in the world, it is Biden and Ukraine. We know that. We know that. We know that whole thing about Biden's kid over there in Ukraine holding those people up for ransom money or extortion money to get what they wanted. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, uh, you know, it's, so they're going to try they're going to try like crazy to cover that up. And at the same time, uh, pronounce Biden as the only guy who can stand up to Putin. Meanwhile, as I covered yesterday, Putin is all over South America. He's all over Maduro and Venezuela. He's into Cuba, of course, and he's extending into Colombia and Nicaragua. Um, uh, so, so that won't even make the papers. We're going to tamp that down, keep that down. Um, so there's surprisingly a Pew Research Center poll released last week says still that there's still 41% of the voters who approve of how Biden, Biden's doing his job. But it has slipped. But that's still 41% are crazy. And, you know, from my point of view, and I'll just tell you, that's my opinion. So, you you know, you can discard it right away. Um, in a generic ballot, uh, Republicans are holding a three-point edge, and that's calling a real clear politics poll. I don't, I don't think that Republicans should be uh, confident, overconfident going into the fall election. It's just not healthy. It's like going into overconfident to play an opponent thinking you own that opponent and turn around, that opponent turns around and gives you hell, you know? So I don't think they ought to be overconfident. Um, they do have 29 Democrats that are going to retire or seek retirement. So the Republicans own, a, own an advantage there, providing um, they, keep the, they keep the status quo going. Um, so, um, um, you know, there, there, there are some things that could happen, but it's going to have to take a massive spin job by the Democrats on inflation, COVID, and foreign policy. And it, it, it remains to be seen. Um, and he's going to also use Supreme Court it, to try to ramp himself up for the female vote, but not just the female vote, but the black female vote 
which the pollsters are telling him is the most significant vote you can tap into. And they're going to play a lot of stuff publicly for you that uh, black females have, have gotten, you know, you know, raw deal all these years. But take a look at our own example, Cynthia Chestnut. That woman has enjoyed a, a, a Politburo status. I mean, she's a black female. Are you telling me that she's been shortchanged politically? Come on, this is the most um, obvious of, um, counter to that argument you can find. Meanwhile, if you disagree with this, uh, just as you, as I've been uh, explaining to you all, uh, Facebook and and, and uh, all, uh, all those uh, YouTube and all that bunch keep an eye on the Ward Scott files. Um, they keep an eye on academia too. On the wrong, academia has been eat up with the communists. Some a lot of people think for a long time, at least the socialists and at least the liberals. There are very few conservatives at all in the academic world. Um, so in, in Georgetown Law School, there was an incoming professor, and this is in Washington, uh, uh, in, in a lot of the papers, in the Washington Examiner and the D.C. papers. Georgetown Law School placed an incoming professor on administrative leave after he deleted and apologized for a tweet that he condemned Joe Biden's affirmative action commitment to nominating a black woman to the Supreme Court. And the Georgetown Law Dean, I just got through telling you that the University of Florida Law School doesn't have any conservative law professors. Well, here's why. Here's why. Hey, if you don't if march to the, to the drummer of the, of the prevailing attitude of, the, uh, of, 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 of all this narrative that we've written uh, into the record here that uh, whites are oppressors and, and, and blacks have been oppressed, um, and as I say, you can't really get the true story from anybody. That, see, the true story has been uh, killed off. Um, this is why we had what we call in literature the Great Southern Renaissance. The Great Southern Renaissance was, were people like Faulkner, Peter Taylor, Eudora uh, uh, Welty, some of these great Southern writers, uh, Alan Tate, uh, Andrew Lytle. Um, these people got together and wrote and became, they were the intelligentsia of the South, uh, the story uh, of the South, because they knew if they didn't write it, it when they died, it was going to die with them. So if you want to read uh, about uh, the whole, read the literature, because so far the literature is still accessible. Uh, you can still read Faulkner. You can still read these people who told the stories as they were. And if you want to read what some people call the greatest short story, read The Bear by William Faulkner. It'll tell you the whole complicated relationships of the races in of the South. So uh, that's not available, though. I tried to teach a Southern literature class at Santa Fe, and I couldn't get the, the, anybody to, to support it. Uh, the moment you put the word Southern in front of the word literature, I mean, it became... Uh, something that, uh, you know, you didn't dare get near. When the greatest literature in the country has been written by the Southerners, uh, there is no Yankee writer that can compete with the Southern Renaissance writers. Nobody, and certainly nobody out West. So, uh, you know, there you are. That's my position, and I'm going to stick with that one because I know what I'm talking about. I'm talking now about fiction, talking about short stories and novels. Uh, poetry, a little different. So, um, here's a guy, he's a Cato scholar, um, he's an income professor, uh, his name is Elia Shapiro, he's been put on administrative leave, uh, 
He's caused pain and outrage uh, at the Georgetown community for daring to question uh, the nomination of a black woman and associate that nomination with affirmative action. Um, he has suffered, therefore, uh, particularly from quote unquote black, he's, he's caused to have suffering uh, visited upon black female students, staff, alumni, and faculty, and thou shalt not behave as he does or speak as he does because you hurt too many people. Um, and, and, and the official position of the dean is that uh, Shapiro's work is antithetical to the work that we do. And here is the purpose of the Georgetown Law School, as stated by the dean. Are you ready? The purpose of the day at the Georgetown Law School is to build inclusion, belonging, and respect for diversity. Hello. Hello. That's the purpose of the Georgetown Law School. Are you kidding me? So since Shapiro did not support the purpose of the school that had just hired him to be a professor. He's been placed on administrative leave. Now they're going to have an investigation, further investigation into this dude, into whether he violated the Georgetown's policies and expectations on professional conduct, non-discrimination, anti-harassment. Are you kidding me? And violated and perpetuated racial stereotypes about individual capabilities and qualifications? Are you kidding me? Really? Meanwhile, Shapiro, you know, he issued an apology. He said it was a poor choice of words. Come on, man, stick your guns. You know, but he needs a job, apparently. Poor choice of words, he says. He Apologize. I, he's like Lee Pinkerson. I apologize. I apologize. I apologize. I apologize. I apologize for his discrediting the Georgetown Law School. Huh? Huh? I'm looking over here to see if any of y'all comment on that. If you don't comment on it, um, maybe you're just stunned. I don't know. Maybe you're just stunned. Huh? Maybe you're just stunned. The Georgetown law community says that this Shapiro guy failed to live up to the most basic standard of human decency. And that the school's administration's actions and language have consequences for the health and discourse at the school. And that they've done, the administration has done real damage to that this week by putting up with this. I, 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 I got it. I got it. It's too early in the morning to drink, but it darn sure makes you want to. It's amazing. It, it, it simply is amazing. Meanwhile, meanwhile, how much time have I got left here, my friends? I've got about five minutes left. This is all over the news right now that the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation did not raise a single penny for the first year, six years of its existence. Couldn't raise any money. Uh, the foundation wasn't even registered with the Internal Revenue Service as a charity. 
But are you ready for this? After George Floyd's murder, tens of millions of dollars were given to the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation by major corporations and celebrities. And now, guess what? No one knows where all that money has gone. And even, it sounds like City of Gainesville, doesn't it? And even worse, there doesn't appear to be anyone in charge of the organization who can provide that information. Huh? There was so much money coming into the Black Lives Matter that they had to channel the donations through Thousand Currents and the Tides Foundation until IRS approved its application for nonprofit status in December 2020. And around this time, an organization, a, a, a financial or, uh, organization called Thousand Currents transferred $66.5 million to Black Lives Matter. A transaction personally signed off on by Black Lives Matter co-founder, Patisse Colors. Oh boy, oh boy. This is really, uh, this is, the, this is, uh, and there are a lot of people writing about this and wondering about this. This is in the Washington Examiner. It's been, uh, I've seen it other, uh, I've seen it in other publications. It's beginning to draw a lot of attention. But one of the things that did it, I think the lady in charge of this moved to Canada and bought a mansion uh, with this money. Um, uh, but uh, I got, I got to tell you, I got to tell you that, that, for those of you who wonder, um, Black Lives Matter equal real estate investment equals mansions. Yeah, that that seems to be the that seems to be the uh, syllogism. I didn't even get into. I don't think I've got time to get into how one of the uh, uh, defendants in the uh, January sixth thing is being treated in the D.C. jails. I'll probably try to do that tomorrow. I wish I had time to do it today. I almost do. I got got a couple of minutes there. I think. Um, there's a guy in there going to do a hunger strike. He's Jacob Lang, 26. He's been in the Washington, D.C. jail for a year. Uh, the federal government claims he tried to strike Capitol Police officers with a bat and shield. Um, he says that the way he's treated in there um, is incredible. The court system in D.C. is corrupt. Uh, the judges... Uh, if you wear the badge, he says, of a conservative or a Trump supporter or a libertarian and you go to court in D.C., you're going to get screwed. If you are a liberal or a Black Lives Matter or Antifa, you get out with a wrist slap and leniency. So he's just, he's limiting uh, himself, going on a hunger strike. He says he's been in the hole in solitary confinement. Uh, he's been in there for five months in, uh, uh, in, in, in D.C. jail. Um, I'm going to look into that some more. Amazing. Amazing. Hey, thanks a lot for tuning in. Uh, spread the wealth. Um, we are um, keep, keep information coming to you. It's all um, uh, up to you to do with what you want to with it. And hopefully it's been informative and uh, helpful. I want to help uh, thank production for steering us definitely through our little negotiations with uh, uh, YouTube. That was all taken care of by 
my production guy who uh, understands the minds of these people better than I do if there's such a thing. So <laughs> he's winking at me now. You can't see it. But he wrote a very good appeal uh, as, as a young, as, as a young and what I refer to as a young. Of course, when you're at my age, everybody's a young. So uh, have, a, have a great day. Warthog Command Center out.